this is genetics in your world a podcast by the early career leadership program of the genetics society of america where we delve into the latest genetics research featuring highlighted content from gsa journals this is your host ananya neelamangala shrinivasa a phd candidate at the university of kansas medical center today we will be discussing a recent publication titled the entomopathogenic nematode stenoderma hermaphroditum is a self fertilizing hermaphrodite and a genetically tractable system for the study of parasitic and mutualistic symbiosis published in genetics by dr mangi sao and her colleagues dr sao is currently a postdoctoral researcher in dr paul sternberg's group at caltech she received her bachelor's degree in biology from colorado college and then went on to earn her phd in microbiology from university of wisconsin madison in this episode dr sao will describe the work done by the sternberg group on characterizing the reproductive mode of entomopathogenic nematode s hermaphroditum and established this species as a novel genetic model to study microbial symbiosis thank you for joining us dr sao thank you ananya for inviting me it's an honor to be here yes it's an honor having you here on the podcast as well so we'll start with a little bit about you and your scientific journey how did you get interested in science Yeah, of course. Um so my father is a food chemist. Growing up is always been very fun to help him out uh, with his experiment for tasting different flavor packets in the kitchen. I thought I would want to become a chemist until when I was in middle school, I saw this transgenic mouse expressing GFP that was highlighted in the evening news. I remember back then the science news in China was mostly broadcasted late at night. That day, my father woke me up so I could watch the news with him. It was absolutely blowing my mind and got me interested in biology. That's awesome. I can't imagine my dad like waking me up in the middle of the night just to show me science <laughs> news. Like he would not do that because he would not be watching science news. Could you describe your scientific journey so far? Yes, I grew up as a very curious student and I was very passionate about biology but I wasn't very confident in math or science classes I'm very much indebted to my middle school and high school math and science teachers who supported me to develop the grit in solving problems and facing obstacles after I finished high school in China I did my undergraduate study at the Colorado College is a small liberal college in Colorado Springs I absolutely enjoyed my science classes but I was too scared to declare my major in biology until I finished my summer research with my advisor Phoebe Lostro. At the time, I was working with a bioluminescent bacterium called Vibrio fischeri. It is a mutualistic symbiont isolated from the Hawaiian bobtail squid, Euprimna scolopes. This beautiful bioluminescence produced by the bacteria was so charismatic and reminded me of the moment when I first saw the transgenic mouse glowing with GFP on the news. So this research experience not only convinced me to become a biology major but also got me into microbial symbiosis. The study of interactions of host and their 
beneficial microbes. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for graduate school because Madison has a great PhD program in microbiology and a large group of scientists studying microbial symbiosis. We called it a symbiosis cluster. In particular, I worked with my PhD advisor, Dr. Heidi Glitch-Blair on the tripartite symbiosis system, Stanonema nematodes and Xenorhabditis bacteria, the mutualistic symbiotic pair that kills the insects. I learned the bacterial genetics was so powerful that it could revolutionize the field in studying basic questions in microbial symbiosis. So towards the end of my PhD, I got curious on the host animal side and hoped to develop genetic tools in Stanonema nematodes in order to study how bacteria impact host animal physiology. Although the Stanonema nematodes were discovered for centuries with diverse species across the globe, consistent genetics tools are lacking in these worms, hampering the research in molecular biology in these species. So with this motivation, I joined Dr. Paul Sternberg's group at Caltech so that I could learn the basic genetics in C. elegans and hopefully adapt these tools in Stanonema nematodes one day. That's awesome. And I love the full circle moment you had with the bioluminescence and the transgenic mouse. Yeah, I think that's the motivation for the scientific journey. I wanted to ask about your future career aspirations and if you'd like to share anything about what you're passionate about. Yeah, of course. So in terms of my future career, I would absolutely love to establish my own lab to study nematode bacteria symbiosis and hopefully push forward genetics tools development on the host animal side. Uh, more importantly, I hope I could be a good mentor and encourage young people to participate in scientific research. Um, the nematode bacteria symbiosis system is very friendly for all levels of education and research uh, with a rich biodiversity in Stanonema nematodes and genetic tools development on the host animal side. We hope to expand a playground for many curious minds. That's awesome. I love that you call it a playground. <laughs> yeah, hope more people can come in and have fun. So let's move on to the study. What are entomopathogenic nematodes and uh, why are they relevant? So entomo means insect and the pathogenic means being hurtful. Entomopathogenic nematodes basically means parasitic nematodes that could infect and kill insects. So in general, they are thought to include Stanonema and Heteropthetes nematodes. There are some other reports that nematodes in the genus called Oseus could also efficiently kill the insect. So therefore, they could also be entomopathogenic. So these nematodes represent a rich biodiversity and play crucial roles in controlling insect population in the soil. Some of the species have been applied in agriculture as a non-chemical agent for pest control. So you could buy these worms from Amazon online to apply in your gardens. In the laboratory, there are excellent experimental systems because you could grow the symbiotic bacteria and the nematodes together or separately, either in vitro on petri dishes or in vivo through caterpillars. You could even grow them germ-free without any symbionts. So these experimental setups could help us explore how nematodes seek, seek for their insect host. These are called host-seeking behaviors and how these nematodes interact with their symbiotic bacteria, such as bacterial colonization in the nematode intestine. That, that is kind of scary that you can just buy <laughs> nematodes from Amazon. Uh, but it's also very cool that you can use them in your garden and like get rid of pests. 
Yeah, um, remember they're very friendly, so they won't really infect people, and you can get them on your skin, and you're gonna be okay. That's that's good to hear. Okay, what biological questions interested you while you were studying the Steiner Enigma species and their symbiont? So there's actually very broad biological questions you can answer with these systems. So the standard Nima Xenoraptis system is very valuable because it represents binary and naturally occurring symbiosis. In this case, one species of the nematode naturally associates with one species of the bacterial symbiont in the intestine which provides a simplified biologically relevant model to study how animals and their symbiotic bacteria recognize each other. The molecular mechanisms of the nematode symbiont recognition, which we still don't know much about, could engage immune and neuronal pathways. So developing genetic tools in the nematode host will help us understand these pathways engaged in the nematode symbiont interactions, especially the conserved molecular mechanisms among animals, including humans. In addition, the symbiont could modulate nematode behaviors, development, and the longevity, which are important aspects to study in microbial ecology. That's, that's amazing because it has like a multifaceted angle where you can study multiple things and learn. Uh, yeah, it learns very broad and diverse um, questions that has many fields that could be engaged. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is very, um, we're very excited about this coming up. Yeah. Could you explain the life cycle of these nematodes and their symbionts? Yes. So standard Nima nematodes are soil dueling and they could be found in the soil as infective juveniles or IJs. IJ is a specific diapause stage that the nematodes are not feeding or defecating. Their intestine is zipped up, except for one little open intestinal pocket where symbiotic bacteria are housed. This intestinal pocket only allows the correct species of bacteria to enter. Environmental microbes that are not symbionts cannot reach into this pocket. The IG nematode would carry the symbiont and seek for an insect prey. There are quite a few strategies that the nematode would use to find their insect host. They could crawl towards the prey using insect-associated olfactory cues. Some species nictate a behavior that the worm would stand on its tail and wave its head in the wind to hopefully get onto an insect host or some other animals like a snail that could give them a ride. Some species even jump onto the insect prey. So once they get into the insect host, IJ could produce toxins while releasing the bacteria that also contributes to killing the insect. On the dead insect, symbiotic bacteria break down the insect's body and the nematode feed on the symbionts. IJs grow into adults and they could re reproduce. Eggs are hatched into juveniles and could grow back into adults. But once the nutrients are depleted in the insect body, the juvenile nematodes will grow back into infected juveniles again, packaging their symbiont in the intestinal pocket and leave the insect body to start a new life cycle. That is blowing my mind because I have like two follow-up questions. One is just a cool question. One is a more scientific question. The cool question is, so do scientists who study the nematodes that jump on their hosts or like ride on snails, do they have videos of this happening? Yeah, of course, there are actually a couple of different publications um, that you can actually search um, on 
jumping nematodes. My PI, Dr. Paul Sternberg, used to work with Alyssa Helen, now a professor at UCLA, and Adler Dillman, now a professor at UC Riverside. In the Sternberg group, that they published a paper together to describe the jumping of nematodes. And um, there was a really cool video that was published with these, uh, these papers that you can see a worm hop by an induction of carbon dioxide. And there's even a close-up video that it believe now is published in micropublication that you can see one worm take off, sleep around uh, in the air, and hop back. That was really, really wow. great video. This is that was taken by Dr. Adler Dillman. So you can search online to find these videos and see how amazing, how high these worms can hop and how soft they can land. And it makes you think if you can make a robot like that to hop, you know, on the planet <laughs> in the universe. So that would be something really cool. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And then the second scientific question was, so you mentioned that the nematodes only allow the symbiont to enter the pouch, the intestinal the pouch, pocket. Yes. So do you think there's like a coevolution there which allows the symbiont to enter it while that hasn't happened for the other uh, environmental microbes? Yes, so this is the model we have, that there is definitely co-evolution, co-adaptation of the symbiotic bacteria and their host nematodes. So the molecular mechanism for such interaction is not completely characterized, but it is sort of known on the bacteria side from this one species called Xenorhabditis nematophila. So Xenorhabditis nematophila that only colonizes the nematode Stenonema carbocapsi would express an array of mechanisms, including an outer membrane protein called NeoB that is required for the bacteria to attach to the nematode tissue to initiate this colonization. There's a decade of work from Heidi goodrich Flair's lab describing how the bacteria would what kind of molecular mechanisms used by the symbiotic bacteria to find the nematode host. However, there's almost nothing we know on the nematode side, like what kind of molecules that nematodes would produce to interact with the bacterial colonization factors. We have some clue, and again, these clues are coming from Heidi Goodrich-Blair's lab, but with our genetic tools, it is a little bit hard to go in-depth with these molecular mechanisms on the nematode side. Hopefully, like the genetic tools that you're going to describe now might help. So before we begin talking about the study, would you like to give a shout out to your collaborators in the field and how they helped through the scientific journey of this work? Yeah, of course. So developing genetic tools in entomopathogenic nematodes has been attempted by Sternberg Group and other groups. And it's known to be historically difficult. So when I first joined, uh, my first attempts were in a different species called Stenonema carbocapsi, but it was really difficult and inconsistent. I remember during COVID time when I had sleepless night thinking about how am I going to develop these tools in carbocapsi, our collaborator Adler Dillman from UC Riverside contacted me and shared with me the newly discovered Stenonema hermaphroditum from India. My colleagues Hello, Schwartz, James Tan, and my PI Paul Sternberg immediately joined me to complete the work we included in this paper. But beyond this paper, I want to shout out for again Adler Dillman, Eric Schwartz, and Anil Bania, 
that they are currently completing the genome and transcriptome of uh, Staminium hermaphroditum, which is going to be a great support for our future work. And they are doing it with a speed that exceeded any other Staminima species. I'd also love to shout out for our collaborators, Heidi Woodridge Blair and her postdoc, Jennifer Hepburn, who are currently working on the bacterial genetics of the symbiont of the Sandin Hermaphroditum, and they were also one of the earliest people who got interested in the system, immediately joined us, and also together we have an SFH grant that supported this work and the work beyond. That's awesome. It's amazing to see scientific collaboration, especially during such a difficult period of time, which has been the last like, few years because of COVID. How did you establish a protocol to grow and maintain these entomopathogenic nematodes in the lab? So the protocol to breed and maintain EPNs was established for decades by dedicated nematologists and microbiologists. The challenge for breeding these nematodes has always been growing them on a transparent media, which we couldn't do before this paper, so that we could easily visualize the animals for genetic screens. So what we have found out with Stanonema hermaphroditum in particular is that these nematodes breed extremely well on transparent media called NDM or nematode growth media. We think the reason for our success in this particular strain is because they are freshly isolated from the field rather than inbreeding in a laboratory for a long time as we would do with other Stanonema species. Again, I would really thank our collaborator Adler Dillman. He's a nematologist from UC Riverside and he connected the field biologists and the molecular geneticists to work together on this project so that we are able to get fresh isolates of Stanonema hermaphroditum to work with. So knowing that inbreeding could cause issues with these nematodes, we immediately worked on developing cryopreservation methods. We had our four postdocs that I've mentioned above from both Sternberg Lab at Caltech and Goodrich Blair Lab at UT Knoxville, trying out all possible freezing approaches known to the nematodes. And finally, a Trahalo's EMSO-based method we adapted from Kevin O'Connell's protocol was efficient for our worms. This is a big relief for all of us. Uh, we will not lose our string again, and we can set up the foundation for the genetics by maintaining wild type and mutant lines. That's awesome. So in this study, you describe how stenodema is consistently a hermaphrodite. How did you get to this conclusion and why is this relevant? Uh, we used a few different approaches. So firstly, a single hermaphrodite could self-reproduce. This is a little surprising because the previous publication on a different string of stenonema hermaphroditum, which was published 20 years ago and then subsequently lost. From that publication, it was not very clear if stenonema hermaphroditum is consistently hermaphroditic. So when we found out a single hermaphrodite could self-reproduce consistently over multiple generations, that was very exciting for us. And then we immediately thinned the sperm of the hermaphrodite Bermathica. So this work was done by James Tan, my colleague, and we could clearly see there are sperms occupied in the Spermathica. And this is another evidence to say that this species is self-fertilizing. And thirdly, we used mutant alleles that serve as genetic markers to help us confirm the species is self-fertilizing rather than parthenogenic. So this is great work done by my colleague, Hello, Schwartz, and you could find more details 
in the paper. So the mode of reproduction is really important to know for the future genetics tool development. So in our case, since the species is similar to C. elegans mode of reproduction and sex determination, we would better able to adapt C. elegans-like genetics tools instead of Nimahermaphroditum, which will make our life much easier for tool development. However, we're not saying that uh, we should quit on all other Stanonyma species because they're not hermaphroditic. This is not the type of genetic model we're establishing. We're hoping to use Stanonyma hermaphroditum as a launch pad for genetics tools so that once we can do genetics in one species, we can adapt it in diverse Stanonyma species. That's amazing. So you're looking to build a toolbox which you can then use to explore much, much more species in yes. this field. Yes. What I like to describe this is that we are establishing a genetic role model rather than a genetic model so that we're not excluding all the other species. I think because of the technology in genetic tool development these days, in the future, once the genetic tools are getting easier and easier, we're not only, you know, spend all our time working on one species and making it the only model, but we're going to learn how to do this and hopefully do it in as many species as possible. Cool. That's, that's really nice. I like the use of this as a role model rather than a model because then you're not, as you said, restricting yourself because then you're not putting yourself in a box, right? So you're keeping that pretty open and pretty interesting where you can like look at all of these different species and learn yeah. a lot. Yeah, if you look back at the traditional genetic models, like we have, uh, you know, E. coli, we have yeast, we have worms, like C. elegans, that represents all worms, which I don't think it, it should be like that, Yeah. right? So it's also zebrafish that represents all fish, all fish yeah. <laughs> mice that represents all mammals. All so, mammals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, so we're just, you know, a little mouse with two legs, right? <laughs> but I think this is really going to change in the future again, because of the revolution in technology development, what the genetic model would mean will be different. It's not just this one species that represents everyone, but one species is a launch pad that we can learn from this one species and apply in other species because every species has the unique biology uh, we could learn from that we may not be able to learn from the so-called model organism. Yeah, I love that attitude. Could you describe some of the mutants you generated through forward genetic screens, and was there something interesting that you uncovered? Yeah, so using EMS mutagenesis, we're able to isolate some of the classical phenotypes in nematode mutants, such as stumpy, so they are short and they're very cute. Kinkers, they have trouble moving forward or backwards if you tap their head or their tail. There's also a twitcher, so it has a mutation in the muscle gene called ONC22 homolog, so it starts to shake, or we call it twitch. It's very fun to watch. So this is the proof of concept that we could establish for genetic tools in the species. The second function for these mutants is to prove that the species is self-fertilizing as a model of reproduction. So self-reproduction could still be either self-fertilization or parthenogenesis. So self-fertilization has both egg and sperms participate in the embryo formation, while parthenogenesis has only egg but no sperm participating in the formation of the embryos. So using mutants from the EMS genetic screens as markers, we are able to show that chromosomes segregate in the Mendelian ratio, which exclude the possibility of parthenogenesis, and it is a proof 
of uh, self-fertilization. So the mode of reproduction is really important to know for the future genetics tool development. Awesome. As a geneticist, I think it was really cool that I could, you know, write down all the crosses and then kind of understand your data through that perspective as well, because I just felt like I was learning something new. And it was, it was nice. It's a nice exercise. Yeah. So we are, uh, we're really hoping that our paper could explain the mechanisms well so that, you know, even for a general audience, would understand some of the basic concepts we're trying to deliver <laughs> in this work. Awesome. So we'll move on to the conclusions. What are some areas of research, specifically the entomopathogenic nematode research that the field is interested in? Yeah, so right now, we definitely would love to push the genetics tool development forward. Um, so currently, Sternberg Group is working on some of the reverse genetics tools, including CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing tools. Our collaborators, Adler Diemann's group and Eric Shores, completing high-quality genome and transcriptome sequencing for Sanum hermaphroditum. Heidi Widerich-Blair's group is working on genetics tools development in the symbiotic bacterium, Xenorhabdis griffoni. So keep following us for more exciting work that is coming up. As the genetics tools are established in place, we would be able to explore the biological questions, such as how do nematodes and bacteria recognize each other? How does the nematode develop intestine and pocket to house their symbionts? What small molecules do these nematodes produce to communicate with each other and with other organisms in the soil? How does the symbiotic pair produce toxins to kill their insect host? And of course, there will always be questions that surprise us as we keep going and exploring on our journey. Awesome. Also, would you like to share what questions you are interested in answering? Currently, what I'm interested in is this nematode transmission behavior that I found could be modulated by their symbiotic bacteria. So when nematodes are IJs, their only mission is to find an insect to infect. If we put these IJs on a plate and give them food bacteria, such as camomonas, which is a very nutritious food these nematodes would love to eat when they are not IJs. So these nematodes IJs, they would not be interrupted. They would not be distracted by the food. They would leave the food patch and go set off to seek for insect host. So the only distraction and modulation is the smell and the presence of their symbiotic bacteria. So if the symbiotic bacteria is around, these worm forgets about their mission to find an insect and they would be attracted by the symbionts and they would go back to reproduction rather than setting off for an insect host. So what I'm interested in is how does the nematodes discern their symbiotic bacteria versus any other environmental microbes. And I think there might be the smell of the bacteria, the taste of the bacteria, the texture of the bacteria that could be responded by the worm olfactory, gustatory, or kennel sensation. And that is very specific to this particular species of the nematode. So this is the question I'm currently interested in and hope to explore with the genetic tools that I'm developing. That's really cool. I hope I get to read more from both you and the entire entomopathogenic nematode group that you just gave a shout out to. I also want to add on, so for the conclusion, most of the work I have described is for me and my colleagues and my collaborators, but 
uh, definitely there are other scientists who are working on uh, broader questions that covers many different fields, the nematode development, such as host seeking. So there are definitely much more questions you can answer. This is, again, a very large playground for anyone who's curious. We're not trying to restrict this into a very small group. We're really trying to engage everyone from every level to have these worms and the bacteria in your classroom, in your lab, in your outreach program, so that people can get to play with them. Yes, that's what we all want, more people to get into science. So thank you for coming on to the show to share your story and research with us today. As a geneticist, it was really exciting to hear about your you and your group's contribution to learning more about the complex interactions between a host, its pathogen, and then the pathogen symbiont. I think that's a really interesting system. And also about your development of this genetic role model, as you called it, which would help us understand much, much more about these really cool nematodes and their symbionts. I'm sure the scientific community will really benefit from what I hope will be the start of really exciting research. Thank you again, and good luck with your future scientific endeavors. Thank you, Ananya. The Genetics in Your World podcast is produced by the multimedia team of the Early Career Leadership Program of the Genetics Society of America. We invite you to visit the Society's website, genetics-gsa.org, for more information on how you can get involved with the genetic scientific community. Thank you for spending time with us, and we hope to meet you again in our next episode.